Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. In 1967, Jimi Hendrix would give a legendary performance at the Monterey Pop Festival, headlining along with Janis Joplin, The Who, and The Grateful Dead. But just a few short years later, Hendrix would take his final bow in London on September 18, 1970. The Purple Haze guitarist had just completed a tour and stayed at the Cumberland Hotel in London. He was due to check out on Wednesday night, but asked the hotel manager to book him for one more evening. Later that night, he would head out to a party, but eerily, he would never return. On Thursday evening, September the 17th, Hendrix would stay at the flat of Monica Danman, a German painter whom he occasionally dated. After returning from a party early Friday morning, Hendrix took several sleeping pills and went to bed. A few hours later, Monica found him unresponsive and called an ambulance. But when they arrived, she was nowhere to be found. The medics immediately rushed Hendrix to St. Mary Abbott's Hospital, but he would be pronounced dead on arrival at 11.45 a.m. Join us on a supernatural journey as we tour the rock and roll history of Jimi Hendrix with Brad Schreiber, co-author of Becoming Jimi Hendrix. The book is now featured in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame library. Becoming Jimi Hendrix is based on over 100 interviews with those who knew Hendrix best during his lean years, more than half of whom have never spoken about him on the record. Utilizing court transcripts, FBI files, private letters, unpublished photos, and U.S. Army documents, Becoming Jimi Hendrix is the story of a young musician who overcame enormous odds, a past that drove him to outbursts of violence and terrible professional and personal decisions that complicated his life. Today, Brad Schreiber will talk more about Jimi Hendrix and discuss the mystery surrounding the rock star's untimely death. I'm JC Nova, and this is Death by Misadventure. like to welcome you to Death by Misadventure. It's an honor to have you on the podcast show today. I would love to know more about some of your work as a journalist and some of your favorite books that you've written. Thank you so much, JC. It's really a pleasure to talk with you, especially about Jimmy, who I feel a spiritual connection to. And I think forensically it can be proven that he was killed and he did not overdose. So appreciate uh, the opportunity to make that clear. Anyway, I've written for all media, including TV. I created a TV series on my book, Death in Paradise, which is the only authorized history of the L.A. Carter's office about famous deaths of celebrities in L.A. history. 
In addition to that book, of course, I, with the Hendrix historian Steve Roby, wrote um, the book on Jimmy, Becoming Jimi Hendrix, and it was his early years that we covered. Also, I have a real fondness for the last book that I've done. There are about 12 or 13 books, but the last one was called Music is Power, and it's a 100-year history of socio-political music, mostly in England and the United States, um, from the Union songs to um, Dylan and Baez and Phil Oakes, all the way through country music and Green Day's American Idiot and uh, all kinds of different genres of music in the last 100 years. Can you tell me a little bit about Jimi Hendrix's life growing up? What did you learn when you were doing research for the book? Actually, Jimi had a Dickensian horrifying life. Seattle, ironically, was in the 40s one of the most ethnically mixed cities in the United States. But Jimi's parents had split. His father was a laborer who had not even graduated high school. Uh, Jimi... And his little brother, Leon, sometimes walked from house to house in their neighborhood, scrounging for food. Electricity sometimes was not on in their home. It was an incredibly difficult life. And Jimmy became a gypsy. You know, he obviously had the group Band of Gypsies, but really he was a gypsy. It really impacted him because his mother, Lucille, died at 33. And it's very possible that she was brutalized, even though she had alcoholic problems. It's very possible that her spleen ruptured because she was beaten by a man. So Jimmy saw her in the hospital shortly before she died one time. The separation, the poverty, brothers and sisters who were given up to foster care, it was an incredibly horrifying childhood. And the fact that Jimmy overcame it, got away from Seattle and became famous is really quite a miracle. When did Jimmy first become interested in music? Very early on. he, His father, Al, gave him a busted ukulele with one string and he couldn't play it, but he was so enamored of the idea of playing music that he actually brought a broom to Horace Mann Elementary School in Seattle, and he would hum and pretend he was playing. And then finally, a friend of Al's came over with the guitar, and Jimmy was plucking it away. And a friend of the family, Ernestine Benson, turned to Al Hendricks and said, Al Hendricks, you are buying your son this guitar for $5. The man had offered it, and Al pled poverty, and Ernestine insisted, and everything changed because Jimmy, night and day, played the guitar, even slept with it as a young boy, and that carried on, actually, in the military, where when he went to sleep in the barracks, the guitar lay atop his chest. When was Jimmy first discovered I know that he spent time in the military. Was it after he left the military? Yeah, he actually, I believe, had the greatest skill. Let me put it this way. He improved his skill immeasurably when he was in the 101st Airborne at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, because nearby 
was Nashville. And when he got out of the military, he was up against some amazing rhythm and blues guitarists. And I think that was the incredible leap. But he was discovered, ironically, by one of the two women who were most important in his life. Linda Keith was a 20-year-old English model who was the girlfriend of Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones. And when she saw Jimmy play at the Cafe Wine, Greenwich Village, in 1966, she was amazed. She did two things that changed Jimmy. One is she told him to start writing his own music because he was doing covers of other people's work. So she encouraged him to be a songwriter. And the other is she brought in Chaz Chandler, who was about to leave the animals and go into management. She met him randomly in New York. He was on the last leg of a tour of the US. And she said, you've got to see this guy, Jimmy. And amazingly, at that time, Chaz Chandler had heard the song, Hey Joe on the radio. And he thought, when I go into management, I want to do a different version of Hey Joe. So when he finally showed up in a, at the Cafe Wa with Linda Keith to see Jimmy's band, the very first song that Jimmy played <laughs> was Hey Joe. And it so astonished Chaz Chandler that he dropped the milkshake that he was drinking in his lap. And he walked up to Jimmy and said, I have got to manage you. And I think that England is going to get your music. And shortly thereafter, they made a deal. And this is when Chaz Chandler brought in from the animals, Mike Jeffrey, to co-manage the band. So in the beginning, when they started working together, did they have a good <clears throat> business relationship or were there red flags? Actually, Chaz and Jimmy got along really well. But the idea was that Chaz was going to be in charge of production of music and artistic decisions. And Mike Jeffrey was going to be handling finances. Well, here's what Jimmy actually found out later about Mike Jeffrey. He had been a member of the MI5, which was the British secret intelligence system. According to James Tappy Wright, who was a roadie and worked very closely with Jeffrey, Jeffrey told him, that he had been an assassin for the MI5. Mike Jeffrey spoke Russian. He had a separate book for accounting. He had an offshore account in the Bahamas. And during the time that he managed Jimi Hendrix, at one point he exerted control over Jimi by having him kidnapped and then rescuing him and saying, see, you have to do exactly what I say because you're in danger. And another time he had a band member dose with LSD to exert control over Jimmy. So by the end of his career, Jimmy was terrified of Mike Jeffrey and was talking to people at the Isle of Wight about, I need an attorney. I've got to get away from Mike Jeffrey. Why didn't the record label step in to try to help him? What, what do you feel like was going on with artist rights during that time period? They did, and at his apex, Jimmy was the highest played guy in rock and roll. He was getting 100 grand a night in 1967, 68 dollars. 
One of the fatal flaws of Jimmy, I'm sorry to say, was that he was extremely naive about business. He sometimes signed contracts without even looking at them. And also, he was very non-confrontational. He had come from, as I said, a Seattle upbringing where you didn't know how you were going to survive from day to day, and he did not want to push people. But had he, for example, hired an attorney to negotiate with Mike Jeffrey about the separation from their contract, it's very likely that he still would be alive today. Can you talk about Jimmy's final days in London? And there's been several stories about what what happened to him and maybe talk a little bit about some of the women in his life and, and who you thought was his actual girlfriend versus the one that he was with the day he died, who claims she was engaged to him, I believe. Right. Monica Denneman was a German figure skater who later became a painter. She was at the Samarkand Hotel in London, and Jimmy was staying at the Cumberland at that time. Uh, her story about Jimmy's death was very, very questionable. She changed her story a number of times. Two nights before the September 18th um, discovery of his body at the Samarkand, Jimmy had gone to see friends like Eric Burden and others at Ronnie Scott's club in London. He was a mess. He was exhausted. Uh, he was drunk. He was on drugs. And he couldn't even perform. So he came back the next night and did a couple of songs. But one of the people I interviewed, J.C., for um, becoming Jimi Hendrix was Richie Havens. Richie Havens had seen Jimmy at the Isle of Wight. And Jimmy said, I need to find an attorney get me away from Mike Jeffrey. He was actually ducking Mike Jeffrey's calls and was trying to get away from him. Richie Havens gave him the name of an attorney, which unfortunately uh, Jimmy never followed up on. So back to Daneman and uh, the Samarkand Hotel, she was not even present when the paramedics arrived after she had called and said, he's not breathing. So her claiming that there were nine Vesperax German sedatives that he took, then she claimed there were 10. She changed the time of when she said she called him. And then no one ever followed up on why were you not even present? The door was open. The paramedics walked in. They found Jimmy already dead, covered in vomit. Why were you not even there? And I believe forensically we can say that he was killed because he was so covered in red wine and it had been in his lungs and very little in his stomach, as well as nine of those Vesperax tablets, that it was clear that he was suicided, quote unquote, that someone actually forced those tablets and the wine down his throat. And the reason I believe that it was Mike Jeffrey is that James Tappy Wright was the one in his book who said that Mike Jeffrey, a month before he himself died, said to Tappy Wright, I had to kill Jimmy. Um, it was me and two other people, and we put in the wine and the 
the tablets and we told Monica to get the hell out of the room and threatened her and she did. Mike Jeffrey said, I had to do it because I owed money to the mob. Now, I know this is kind of um, not getting to the two women that you uh, asked about, which were very instrumental in Jimmy's life, but I wanted to be clear on, on a suicide, quote, murder. So Mike Jeffrey admitted that he killed Jimmy. You won't really find it in most books, but the money that Mike Jeffrey borrowed for his half of paying for Electric Lady Studios in Greenwich Village was borrowed from a guy named Phil Basile, who was a member of the Lucchese crime family. And James Tappy Wright doesn't name Basile, but says that there was a mobster who owed money and uh, Mike Jeffrey had trouble paying his IRS bill he had owed money to the mob, and they had like a 50% a big 50% interest on the payment. And he did have a $2 million life insurance contract on Jimmy. He knew that Jimmy was trying to get away from him in terms of his contract, and I believe in desperation that he took him out. He ever was. thoroughly investigated Mike Jeffries? Like, what happened to Jimmy's estate after, after his death? Well, what happened is there would have been more of an investigation. There would have been more of an investigation of Mike Jeffrey, but he himself died in a very freak accident. He was in the Canary Islands, and he received a summons to fly back to London to stand trial for absconding with money from other musical acts that he managed. That was the kind of guy that Mike Jeffrey was. In fact, two very well-established people in show business, Eric Burden of the Animals and Brian Auger, who basically created Jazz Fusion, both said they knew of the reputation of Mike Jeffrey as being corrupt. But Mike Jeffrey got on a private plane to fly back to London. At the time, there was an air traffic controller strike in the Canary Islands, which was belonging to Spain at the time. And so they were using air traffic controllers from the military who were not as familiar with the flight paths. And they misdirected Mike Jeffrey's private plane and it crashed into a civil airliner. Thankfully, the civil airliner, though damaged, landed safely. But Mike Jeffrey and his pilot died instantly. So they never had to stand trial for what they did in terms of absconding with money. And of course, when James Tappy Wright had his book Rock Roadie come out in 2009, it was after Mike Jeffrey had long been gone. But there was at least some poetic justice to Mike Jeffrey being taken out of this world after he himself took Jimmy out. So now the two most important women in Jimmy's life were Linda Keith, who, as I mentioned, encouraged Jimmy to write his own music and then introduced him to Chaz Chandler. And another woman that Jimmy met when he was in Harlem named Litha Thane Pridgen. She was a black woman. She was very, very well known in the music industry. She was lovers with Sam Cooke, Brooke Benton, many other great stars of the day. 
In fact, they dubbed her Apollo Faye because she hung out at the Apollo Theater all the time and was seen with so many stars. But when she met Jimmy, she fell in love with him. She stopped that lifestyle that was promiscuous, and she did her best to help Jimmy uh, survive and become an R&B star. So what happened is you had this triumvirate, Jimmy, Linda Keith, who loved his psychedelic music, and Lithophane Pridgen, who loved his rhythm and blues. What about in a romantic <clears throat> sense? Who was the 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 key girlfriend, or if he even had one, would be considered the love of his life? Well, I think that both those women were important to him, and I think maybe Linda Keith was the love of his life. He saw her before he died. He met her in London, and he gave her a guitar. He also had an envelope from a love letter he had saved from her. And I think that was indicative of the fact that he really appreciated not only their love affair, but how much she influenced him. Incidentally, Linda Keith was the one who turned Jimi Hendrix on to LSD. And that is no small incident, because as soon as Jimmy started taking LSD, he became more creative and he wrote some of the great songs that were on Are You Experienced? It really opened up something creatively in him. So Linda was responsible for helping him write his own songs, turning him on to LSD, which made him more creative, and then introducing him to Chas Chandler, who basically brought him, unfortunately, to Mike Jeffrey, but also brought him to prominence in the UK. So if if I remember correctly, when it came to oh. Jimmy's estate, I believe his father inherited his estate, but then when his father passed somehow Jimmy's brother got cut out of the inheritance and now his stepsister controls his music and image. Is that correct? That's right. It's a very long story and I won't go into it. But Leon, his brother, who Jimmy, by the way, protected and raised when Al wasn't around, was having some problems with drugs and alcohol. So he had to have a renegotiation of the estate. And Janie Hendricks, who was a stepsister who had actually met Jimmy only once or twice, became the one who is now involved in the estate. Does his brother Leon get any money from the estate or is he completely he cut out? No, he did. He did get payments from the estate. And I actually, I got an amazing amount of information about Jimmy from Leon, who also lives here in Los Angeles, where I live. He's an amazing artist, visual artist, as well as a guy who plays guitar. Jimmy used to take a pencil and strap it to Leon's hand when he was very young and encourage him to draw. And Leon eventually became a wonderful artist. And I actually possess an amazing, an amazing silk screen t-shirt that Leon made of Jimmy. Wow, that's that sounds amazing. I I know that obviously Jimi Hendrix lives forever in our minds and hearts and because of his music and, and who he was. But for many, his death will always remain a mystery. What do you say to that? Well, you know, I wrote a book called Death in Paradise about the L.A. coroner's office. 
And whenever I covered those cases, there were some that were circumstantial, but the ones that I really concentrated on were ones that were forensic-based. Forensics will tell you medically what happened. Circumstantial evidence can point to what may have happened. So John Bannister, the surgeon that was attending when Jimmy was brought into St. Mary Abbott's Hospital in London, confirmed that he had these tablets and this wine shoved down his gullet. There was very little of it in his bloodstream and it was filling his lungs. So that alone forensically tells you what you need to know. And then Mike Jeffrey's admission of guilt through Tappy Wright, um, circumstantial evidence. He had borrowed money from the mob and he was being leaned on. He couldn't pay his debts. Jimmy was going to break his contract. All those things, I think, really proved that Jimmy was taken out. And um, it really is beyond a conspiracy theory. He was not an intravenous drug user. He probably was relying too much on alcohol and methamphetamine and maybe some marijuana. And he was not sleeping very well. And he was scared to death, literally. But he was not a drug addict per se. And in no way do I believe that it was an accidental overdose or suicide. And what do you think about certain artists? There is always, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, there are always certain artists um, that leave the world too soon. And do you think that it's coincidence? It's predestined? Do you have any, or is it just, you know, things happen? I'm just curious, like, do you buy into any of the conspiracy theories? Well, interestingly, there is an unusual streak to Jimmy Mystically. He had a premonition, although he didn't know how, that he was going to die before he was 28, which was true. He also had a code name when he would book into hotels. He call himself Jinx, Jay Hendricks. That was a private joke between him and certain people, including Linda Keith. But he also felt that he was jinxed, that his life was really hard. And even though he climbed the pinnacle of success, um, he was a man that was incredibly sensitive and he was prone to depression. And you see it in his work. Songs like I Don't live today, a manic depression. You see a man who is haunted by his past, but at the same time, I want to emphasize that we are lucky that Jimi Hendrix, ironically, could not notate music because what happened was he would create ideas by going into the studio. He didn't notate them and then record them. He would do things that he would work out and abandon and change. And because he didn't notate, he spent more time in the studio than most musicians did in that day. And because of that, we have lots of wonderful recordings and alternate tracks of Jimmy's work. And by the way, when people say so-and-so is a genius, that's bandied about very very easily. 
but Jimi Hendrix was a genius. Remember that he could take a left-handed string guitar and flip it over and play it even without changing the strings. If he heard a phrase of music, he could repeat it instantly. He knew every kind of music there was. He studied with Dick Dale, the king of the surf guitar. He and Billy Cox were listening to classical music when he was in the 101st Airborne. He could master any kind of music. And one of the enduring traits of Jimmy is that he really was a musical genius and he loved all kinds of music and respected it. I'm curious when you, when you wrote the book, how many interviews did you do for the book and how long did it take you to write it? It didn't take long to write it because D. Roby, um, who, as I say, was a great Hendrix historian, but not a writer had spent years connecting with Hendrix historians and other people. And so, um, I'd say that we did at least 150 interviews, most of them by Steve, but I was lucky enough to come in and talk to people like Richie Havens and Brian Auger and some other people. The book actually went pretty fast. I recall that it was about six months of writing, and then Steve did a very good thing. I'm so glad he did. He went to like four or five of the major Hendrix scholars in the world, both in the U.S. and in Europe, who he knew personally. He said, here's the book that Brad and I wrote. Did we get anything wrong? And there were a couple things where the dates were off or the location of something was different. But by and large, we got it mostly right. And, and anything we got wrong, we got corrected by the preeminent Hendrix historians in the world. And the thing about Jimmy is once you read about him and know about him and talk to people who knew him, you understand what an incredible person he was, as well as an amazing musician. He was extremely kind, almost to the point of naivete, very generous, an incredibly decent person. And part of my spiritual connection to Jimmy is telling people he did not take himself out. He was taken out. But thankfully, we have so much music from him to look forward to in future releases, as well as alternate takes that pop up now and then. That's amazing. Another question I wanted to ask you, when you were writing the book, did you ever feel his energy or presence just kind of there with you, pushing you forward yes. as you guys wrote the yes. book? Yes. I want to tell you that one of the times I was interviewing Leon Hendricks, in a section called Silver Lake here in Los Angeles. He had this chuckle and I got a chill because he laughed in a way that I've seen Jimi Hendrix laugh. He had a sense of humor that reminded me of Jimmy. So even though, you know, obviously they were brothers and he had not seen Jimmy for many years. He had lost his brother decades before there was something about being in the presence of Leon that made me feel like Jimmy was there with us and the love that Leon felt and the protection that he had received from Jimmy as a young boy really permeated those moments together. And that was really special. And whatever happened to the studio? Electric Lady Studios is still uh, in 
effect in Greenwich Village. Jimmy may have had maybe 10 weeks or so of recording there before he went off to the Isle of Wight. But it's an amazing place, and it's got a spacey, cosmic uh, mural on the wall, and many people have loved recording there, including Sly and the Family Stone and David Bowie and many others. And it's a great testament to Jimmy that, that it was a nightclub, actually, that was redone in the guise of a wonderful studio that is a great tribute to him. Hmm. That's amazing. That's beautiful. And my last question for you is what is your favorite Jimi Hendrix song? (laughs) This is so hard. I can tell you categorically that ironically with all the exploration Jimmy did and all the genres that he explored, I still love are you experienced best because it had everything. It had propulsive rhythm and blues it had the spacey psychedelia of are you experienced, you know? It had rockers, straight-ahead rockers like Fire. And there is an alternate version of are you experienced on West Coast Seattle Boy, that compilation, that is phenomenal. And so I wouldn't pick one song, but I would definitely say that there was something very special about Are You Experienced? And also Chaz Chandler and Jimmy, they were really a great pair together. Inevitably, Jimmy started getting his own ideas. There were too many hangers on. Chaz was losing control in a good way of Jimmy. You would think it's a bad way, but a producer needs to control an artist's impulses and say, okay, that's really good, but you know, this is too long a song, or that's not the best song. And there was a real give and take of the songs that wound up on Are You Experienced that were, in my opinion, Jimmy and Chess Chandler at their apex together. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for the interview, Brad. It's been amazing. And um, I definitely want to check out some of your other books. To learn more about Brad Schreiber, visit his official website at bradschreiber.com. The book, Becoming Jimi Hendrix, is available for purchase at amazon.com or your favorite bookstore. A special thanks to sound engineer Parker Ginn and audio producer Christopher Lang. This episode was recorded at Laguna Sound in Laguna Beach, California. Don't forget to subscribe to Death by Misadventure on your favorite streaming platform. Thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.